Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. If you are a regular listener to Hell and High Water, you know that we talk to a wide and eclectic Catholic, and I mean Catholic with a small c, range of guests on this program. We talk to people in politics, we talk to people in culture, we talk to people in business and technology, we talk to a lot of different kind of people. This is like, this is a very, very broad church here that we run at this podcast. But we have a particular interest in the intersection of politics and the arts, particularly the entertainment industry, particularly things that happen on television and on, on the big screen. So we've had some really great guests who've been involved in making uh, entertainment products that have been brilliant. And that's why we've had them on the podcast. And as we're thinking about trying to do a little best of episode for Helen Highwater, one of the things that I thought would be really cool was to get some of the most interesting, compelling conversations that we've had with people in the entertainment business, people at the heart of the culture industry who have made pieces of art in the last few months, the last year or so that have struck a big political chord that have been widely lionized for their quality uh, and that have been right in the wheelhouse for this podcast because they've touched on things that have been directly political. And luckily and happily, we've had some fantastic guests in that genre over the last 10 months or so. And in particular, we've had guests who have had some movies or uh, television series that have gotten a lot of acclaim and that got nominated for a lot of awards in this past award season. So we figured that would be a cool concept for this episode. We would pull together a set of conversations we had with people who did movies or limited series in one case for television, for prestige television, uh, that got a bunch of nominations and won some awards in the course of this 2021 award season. And uh, we have three in particular that we wanted to highlight here on today's best of episode, the best of award nominees on Hell and High Water. First, we had, did a great conversation at the end of last year with Aaron Sorkin, of course, of the West Wing and the social network and all of the things you all know Aaron Sorkin has done. We had Aaron on and we talked about his movie, The Trial of Chicago 7, uh, and the difficulties of getting that movie made and wrapping post-production and releasing the film during the time of COVID-19, as well as his hopes for the return of live theater, Broadway reopening. When COVID hit, Sorkin had To Kill a Mockingbird in the middle of what was going to be a years-long run. It had gone from Jeff Daniels as, as Atticus Finch to Ed Harris as Atticus Finch. That got interrupted. It's coming back for sure. You're going to want to see that show. But we talked about that with Aaron on the episode, so we get to hear a little bit of that. Uh, then you get to hear some highlights of my conversation with David Diggs, who played Thomas Jefferson and Marquita Lafayette in Hamilton. Ethan Hawke, of course, has played been in a million things. And the novelist, James McBride, who wrote the book Good Lord Bird. And we talked about the Showtime adaptation of Good Lord Bird, which was fucking fantastic. And we got to have those three on, two of the stars, the author, and had a great conversation about the book and the series. But if you don't know what Good Lord Bird is, it's a, a brilliant book and, and, again, a brilliant series about the famed abolitionist John Brown and what we can learn about race in America now by looking back on that particular moment. And John Brown's incredibly violent and funny and poignant and heroic in some ways quest to bring an end to slavery and uh, set America on the path towards racial righteousness a path. We're still not fully on. I got to say, David Diggs plays Frederick Douglass brilliantly. Ethan Hawke plays John Brown brilliantly. And James McBride turned out to be one of my favorite guests in the history of Hell and I Water. So you're going to get a chance to hear some of that on this episode today. And then uh, you're going to get to hear some highlights of my chat with two of the Academy Award nominated screenwriters for Judas and the Black Messiah, 
that would be the Lucas Brothers, famous really for stand-up comedy more than screenwriting, although not anymore after the success of Judas and the Black Messiah. That's Keith and Kenny Lucas, the Lucas Brothers, identical twins from Newark, who uh, were, again, two of my favorite guests in the, in the whole life of Hell and High Water. They were great. They were insightful and emotional and, and really interesting to listen to them talk about the genesis of that project, what inspired them to write about the story of Fred Hampton who was the 21-year-old chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party and his assassination back in 1969 at the hands of the Chicago Police Department and the FBI. A great movie, two great guests. I think you'll enjoy hearing the highlights of that conversation here. So coming up, Aaron Sorkin, then David Diggs, Ethan Hawke, and James McBride, team behind Good Lord Bird, and then finally the Lucas Brothers talking about Judas and the Black Messiah here on this special Best of awards season nominees for pieces of art where politics and entertainment come crashing together. All of that on this special episode of Hell and High Water. Do you have contempt for your government? I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony from 27 witnesses under oath that say you hoped for a confrontation with the police, that your plans for the convention were designed specifically to draw the police into a confrontation. Well, if I'd known it was gonna be the first wish of mine that came true, I would have aimed a lot higher. It's a yes or no question. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping for a confrontation with the police? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. So Aaron Sorkin, great to have you here on Hell and High Water. And that was a scene, the climactic scene from your new movie, The Trial of Chicago 7, new-ish movie now. Abby Hoffman on the stand at the end of the movie, being confronted by Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing the government lawyer, assistant U.S. attorney who's been conducting the trial. I want to talk about that movie a fair amount okay. here, but I, I think I want to start by asking you this. You do TV, you do movies, and you make theater. All three of those things got kind of pretty fucked up this year due to COVID. What's it been like having your three main platforms for expression shut down. You managed to get work done in all three realms in this year, but it's been a tough year for all those industries. What's it like to have been an artist, a writer, a director of all those things in the middle of this pandemic? Well, first, let me be very clear. As difficult as it may have been, and I'll tell you how it was, I believe that most people in the world would happily trade their challenges for mine. So yes, this year, we all found out the hard way that our livelihoods depend entirely on large groups of strangers gathering in rooms. So Broadway shut down March 11th, along with all the other theaters in the country. I had a play that was doing well. The real tragedy there was that there were plays that were in rehearsal, plays that were in previews. They will never come back. To Kill a Mockingbird will come back this fall. You know, movies have been able to, we found a lifeboat with luxury cabins and a buffet in Netflix, but plays have nowhere to go. And the tough thing about bringing Broadway back is that Broadway can't fully come back until tourism fully comes back to New York. And New York's number one tourist attraction is Broadway. So you've got to be smart about how you restart all of that. We finished Chicago 7. Our last few weeks of post-production were under COVID restrictions. But right. we found that we were able to work remotely. You know, the editor just took all the equipment to his house. Alan Baumgarten was our editor. And we send things back and forth. We mix the sound remotely. We record the score 
at Abbey Road in London, one musician at a time. So it took longer than usual, but it all mixed together beautifully. And the fear now, uh, what the conversation is, is will people go back to movie theaters? And I am clinging to the belief that they will, that nothing is going to replace the experience of being part of an audience, of everybody laughing at the same time, gasping at the same time, crying at the same time, being silent at the same time. People want that. The movies are, are, are what we do on Friday and Saturday nights. The movies are where we go on dates, what we do with our families, what we do over the holidays. And like I said, I'm clinging to the optimistic belief uh, that once it's safe, we will go back. Um, so there's a bunch in that, and, and uh, I don't want to unpack too much of it, but focusing right now just on the theater real quick, which is To Kill a Mockingbird was set for a long, maybe like epic, historic, one of those long Broadway runs that could have gone on forever, set records. Mm. You know, my friend Jeff Daniels, who played Atticus in the first year, was, you know, dedicated to the notion he would perform it for a year straight and not miss a performance. He was like... And he did not. And he did not. And you had just switched over to Ed Harris in that role. The last thing I remember reading about it was this incredible story about how Scott Rudin had decided to, to stage for 18,000 high school kids and middle school kids in New York at Madison Square Garden, a performance of To Kill a Mockingbird at the end of February. And I remember reading the story in the Washington Post where the theater critic wrote, watching To Kill a Mockingbird with 18,000 teenagers was one of the most profound theater experiences of my life. I don't know if you were there, Aaron, but I'm sure you were involved at least a little bit in making that happen. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems, I mean, it's kind of like the epitome in a way of what we lost and what we are going to continue to not have in terms of live performance until we get to the point where we can have it again. I was there. And uh, right up until the minute that it started, I thought it was going to be a train wreck. I thought it was going to be a very well-intentioned disaster. Uh, and just to be clear uh, for your audience, Scott Rudin, our producer, teamed up with Mayor de Blasio, with the Board of Education, and Jim Dolan in Madison Square Garden. And while we were performing the show at night at the Schubert Theater during the day, an entirely different staging of To Kill a Mockingbird was being rehearsed at a warehouse in Queens. An entirely new set built for it that was essentially the size of a basketball court an entirely new staging that would now be in the round instead of the proscenium that we had. But I was certain, first of all, you can't do a play for 18,000 people. Second, you know, I used to be a high school student and a middle school student. What are these kids going to do when they have been let out of school on Wednesday afternoon and the lights go down in Madison Square Garden? I doubt they're going to be paying attention to this play. Like I said, right up until the minute it started, I thought this is a well-intentioned disaster. And like that New York Post critic that you quoted, it was for me the single most profound experience I've ever had in a theater. These kids were wrapped. When they, they left that building wanting more, they, they wanted more theater, they wanted more experiences like that. But I was just about to give the ice bucket challenge to Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, and tell that you've got to do Hamilton for 18,000 public school kids at Madison Square Garden. This is why you wanted to do theater. Trust me, you're going to get more out of it than they will, and they're going to get a lot out of it. It was an incredible experience, and you're right. It happened just a few weeks before the shutdown, or really that any of us had heard of COVID. 
And you're also right that we had been running for 17 months without playing to an empty seat right. when we shut down. But however much we're suffering, when I say we, I'm talking about the cast, sure, but the crew, front of house, ticket takers, ushers, my old job being a bartender in Broadway theaters, those people are getting hammered. And so are the people who own the pizza places around our theater and the bars and the restaurants around our theater and the hotels where people stay when they're going to Broadway shows. So however bad it is for us, that's nothing compared to what it is for others. Yes. And it's obviously similar as we talk about Trial of Chicago 7, you know, in the sense that you made the movie, as you described, uh, it was a long process. I know because you and I have talked about it before. It was a long process that started, I think, with a conversation with you and Steven Spielberg in like 2006. Mm -hmm. And you were, I remember, in New Jersey shooting it in the fall of 2019. You got it out on Netflix. But I know you, and given what you just said a second ago about the theatrical experience, I, I can't help but wonder whether, and again, you're going to say, I know, it, man, we just got, we got this out, we got it in front of people, and we'll talk about it a little bit in a second, but was it not a little frustrating to have that thing go straight to streaming and never have it sit in a movie theater and be experienced the way that movies should be experienced in your view and mine? Of course, I would have loved for it to be in front of an audience. I, I've never seen it in a movie theater or with an audience. The closest I've come is a sound mixing stage where they have a pretty big screen. Uh, the closest I've come to watching it with an audience was uh, Netflix had a drive-in premiere in the Rose Bowl parking lot where they did a great, great job. And it's nice to hear the horns honking and everything, but it's it's not quite the same. But the fact that we were able to get it out at all and the fact that we were able to get it out this year and before the election uh, is, uh, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to Netflix. Like I said, it's like having a lifeboat come along with luxury cabins. And I'm grateful to Jim Giannopoulos and Paramount for being willing to give it up. But the thing about the movie, there's a much to much to say about it. We could talk about it for a very long time. I'm super interested in that period in history. And it's obviously a, a kind of seminal moment in a lot of ways, both mm -hmm. in terms of cultural politics, left politics, the theater of politics, all the stuff that I love a lot that I made my life in a lot of ways about. Yeah. And you do a TV show about it too. Yes. Yes, exactly. But I think there's something about it. You know, that obviously what you got that you could never have expected was the real world intervened in between the time that you wrapped the film and when you released the film, we had this wave of protests across the country. And I'm thinking specifically, I watched the movie again for a second time last night. Mm -hmm. The two things that really stuck, stu you know, obviously there was a wave of protests, including most notably the crackdown on the peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square by Donald Trump's goons. And I'm watching your film and the, first of all, the, the riot scenes as you recreated them in Chicago, I know it was a challenge to try to get those done with the scale that one needed to really capture them, but they are brutal and violent in a way that nothing I've ever seen you do before was. I mean, they're brutal scenes and you hear Abby Hoffman talking about how billy clubs are made of the same mm -hmm. material as baseball bats and you hear the crack in the sound design of the billy clubs against people's heads. And then you have Hoffman in that same scene that we played earlier you have Hoffman say this thing about how the institutions of our democracy are wonderful things that right now are populated by terrible people. A very Aaron Sorkin line, but also a line that seemed to me to speak directly to the moment that we live in. So I, that's a big blob of a question, but I'm just curious as to how you think about the movie that you set out to make and the way in which it changed in some ways and how people would see it given what had happened in the intervening months between when you finished it and put it out. Let me, if you don't mind, back up even more before that. As he said, it was in 2006, Steven Spielberg asked me to come over to his house on a Saturday morning. 
which I just want to say is uncommon. I don't <laughs> Steven Spielberg. And he said he wanted to make a movie about the Chicago 7. I said, that sounds great. So I'm in. Uh, signed me up. Left his house, called my father and asked him who the Chicago 7 were. I was just saying yes to doing a movie with Steven the way literally anyone would. I then had a lot of homework to do. There are a dozen or so good books written about the Chicago 7, some of them by the defendants themselves. There's a 21,000-page trial transcript. But most critically, I got to spend time with Tom Hayden, who passed away a few years ago, but was very much alive at the time. Right. And after the research comes the climbing the walls period and pacing around, you still don't know what you're going to write, what this movie is going to look like. It organized itself into three stories that I was going to tell at the same time. One was the courtroom drama. One was the evolution uh, of the final terrible riot. How did what was supposed to be a peaceful protest evolve into such a violent clash with the police and with the National Guard? And then the third was the more personal story between Abby and Tom. That friction, which is a reflection of the friction you see on the right between the, the left and the further left, between people who want incremental change and people who are tired of incremental change and want to see revolution. I, I thought it was just a good story to tell, that this is a good movie. And then Donald Trump started running for president, and there'd be a protester at one of his rallies, and he'd get nostalgic about the old days when we used to carry that guy out of here on a stretcher, like mm. to beat the shit out of him, punch him right in the face, and protest was being demonized again. And that was the atmosphere while we were making the film. We thought that at that point last winter that the movie was plenty relevant then. We didn't need it or wish for it to get more relevant, but obviously it did. In May, with the police killing of George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery and, and Breonna Taylor, protests in Kenosha, in Portland, in Minneapolis, in DC, as you said, being met once again, nightsticks and, and tear gas. We couldn't have imagined that we were on this 14-year crash course with events. Lines like the one you just quoted that Abby says on the stand were written before Donald Trump. But I don't want to give away a spoiler, but after what happens to Bobby Seale happens to Bobby Seale, the lawyers approach the bench and Mark Rylance, says William Kunstler, turns to Bobby and says, can you breathe? That was written beforehand. You know, I've been asked, did I change the script at all to yeah. mirror events? And the answer is no, events change to mirror the script. I mean, it's incredible that you didn't change. There's so much of it that's feel, that feels so written to the moment and obviously not to the moment that happened after the movie was locked, but to at least the moment of the Trump era, you know, that Hoffman line feels very much like you. It felt for perfectly in character for Abby to say it. It also feels very much like what I imagine someone who reveres the institutions of democracy, as I know you do, you've yeah. written many love letters to them in film and television and on stage. And I know how you feel about Donald Trump. And so that line feels very much like a line written to say something, not just that fits in 1968, but also that fits very much in the moment that we're currently living in. Yeah, I hear that. And listen, even from the beginning, before Trump, I didn't want the movie to be about 1968. I wanted it to be about today. I would say to all the department heads, all the designers, let's not lean into 1968. Uh, let's not fill up the frame with peace signs and tie-dye uh, shirts and psychedelic aesthetic. And with the music, I made it clear we're going to stay away from the 60s protest songbook. A movie like this, you before you even 
before it even starts, you're already hearing Sympathy for the Devil and Fortunate Son in your head. We're not going to do any of that. It's going to be a film score. It's going to be an orchestral contemporary film score because I want it to take away anything that comes between a 2020 audience and this story. And just, again, it's chilling how relevant it became. I do think the movie, I mean, you would never say this, but I will say it, which is that I think the movie is helped by, there are movies that get lucky in the sense that events occur and the wheel turns and people are reminded of the fact that protest in America is alive and well, and that it meets often with violent opposition and that Mm -hmm. this is a long struggle that we are in, in our country and people forget about it in good times. And then it you get reminded of what's at stake uh, in these situations. And when you get reminded a movie like this, it's like, oh, this has been going on for a long time. And it's helpful, I think, to drive that home. I think the movie gains additional resonance and power for what happened in those intervening months in 2020. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. That was a snippet from my interview with Aaron Sorkin. After the break, I talked with David Diggs, Ethan Hawke, and James McBride about the making of Good Lord Bird, the Showtime series focused on famed abolitionist John Brown. After these messages... Hey, sports fans, if you are someone who enjoys Hell and High Water and you are interested in understanding the storylines that are shaping modern life, and I mean, who isn't? Big storylines like the financialization of everything, the world in disarray, and cutting-edge advances in the world of science and technology, then you are going to love and find absolutely indispensable The Recount's newest podcast, The News Items Podcast with John Ellis. Every Monday through Thursday at 5.30 p.m., John and his brilliant co-host, Rebecca Darst, Break down news items from three categories, geopolitics, finance, and science and tech. John Ellis writes one of the very best newsletters in journalism. I'm talking about, like, I get a lot of newsletters, and most of them wash right over me. This one sticks. It's also called News Items, and he's teamed up with Rebecca, who is a veteran financial journalist and someone who just takes a little bit of John's edge off. If you want to feel a little bit smarter, or maybe even a whole lot smarter every day, and come away with a better understanding of the forces that are changing and shaping and transforming our world, then you owe it to yourself to listen to John and Rebecca and the News Items podcast. Plus, on most days, those two brilliant people have a bunch of other brilliant people who come on. Heavy hitters like Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, Jim Cramer from Business TV, Jill Abramson, Steen Jakobsen, all kinds of great folks. So subscribe to the News Items Podcast with John Ellis now. And we're back on Hell and High Water. Let's take a listen to a clip from Good Lord Bird. The question is, did John Brown fail? He certainly did fail to get out of Harper's Ferry before being beaten down by United States soldiers and to lead a liberating army into the mountains of Virginia. So, did John Brown draw his sword against slavery and thereby lose his life in vain? And to this I answer 10,000 times, no. No man fails or can ever fail who so grandly gives himself and all he has to a righteous cause. If John Brown did not end the war that ended slavery, he did at least begin the war that ended slavery. If we look over the dates, places, and men for which this honor is claimed, we shall find that. Not Carolina, but Virginia. Not Fort Sumter, 
but Harper's Ferry. John Brown's zeal in the cause of freedom was infinitely superior to mine. I could live for the slave. John Brown could die for him. The war being waged in this land is a war for and against slavery. And the Brown army fired the first shot. Guys, great to have all three of you here. I'm hoping that everybody either has read this book, knows this history enough to not be bothered by a spoiler alert, which is what that is really. That's kind of the top of the last episode of the series and sort of is both a summary of the story and also kind of helps you to think about what you've just seen. And I, I want to talk today about the book, about the series and about race in America. And I let's start with the book. It's great to have all three of you guys here to do that. James, let me ask you just to start with the series based on your book, Much Heralded, a book that won the National Book Award, people did not expect it, including you, from what I've read. Just tell me how you came to the idea that this was a subject, a topic, and a story that you wanted to tackle. You know, I read many books about John Brown, and he, he was portrayed in some of them as rather crazy, and I just didn't believe it after a while. And uh, I happened upon Harper's Ferry while researching another book and came to believe that he was uh, something of a prophet. And you know, this guy threw his life away for a cause in which he really had no stake. A lot of that had to do with religion and love of his country. And I just thought he was a wonderful person. Well, I mean, I just think he was a compelling American that people should know about. So uh, I just dove into it. Ethan, you had not read the book and someone on another project recommended it to you and said you would make a great John Brown. Then you went and looked at the book and off you guys were to the races. Tell me about like what you saw in the book that made you think, yeah, that guy was right. Like, I should play John Brown. This is a story that needs to be told. When I was reading the book, I couldn't stop laughing. I was sitting in my house and I was just cackling, just like a grade school idiot. I just kept giggling. And, and my wife kept saying, what are you laughing about? And I said, I'm just reading this book. And she said, isn't that about John Brown? And I said, yeah. And I think that question is the essence of why it needed to be told. Meaning, we get this face on, this posture on, when we're told we're going to talk about the hurts and sins of this nation, that actually this kind of sorrowful face, and it makes us not want to have the conversation. It makes us step aside. It makes us think we've heard it before. It makes us fall into some knee-jerk position, positive or negative, that we have a stance on. And McBride's telling of the story invites you in. It invites you to be a part of the story and to laugh at all the human ridiculousness of real people and it doesn't seem to have an agenda with you and by doing that by telling you onion story you know i mean david and i are here but in a lot of ways joshua caleb johnson is the lead of our movie and it's his story and we are these good and bad angels sitting on his shoulders right i felt when i finished the book that feeling that you very rarely have that you just want to give everyone you love this book for christmas you want them to read it and one of the ways as an American actor that I can do that is say, hey, David, why don't we put these clothes on? Why don't we pretend to be these people and we'll tell the story? <laughs> yeah. So Joshua Caleb Johnson, uh, who plays Onion, right? He did uh, got such an amazing job with that role. Uh, David, you get asked to play the part of Frederick Douglass. It is a much, I would say, different picture of Douglass than other people have put on film and a different picture than I think a lot of people have in their heads about Frederick Douglass to the extent that they have a picture in their heads at all. The portrayals rendered in a very particular way in James's book. So I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about 
the Douglas that you read in the book and what it was about the character that appealed to you and made you want to take the part. You know, was Frederick Douglass a hero of yours before you read the book? Yeah, I mean, Frederick Douglass became a hero of mine after working on this, but honestly was not before I I knew about as much about Frederick Douglass as I think a lot of Americans do, which is to say, like, not not nearly enough. And I hadn't read the book. Ethan gave me a copy of The Good Lord Bird after he asked if I'd be interested in doing this. He said, read the book, though, just read it and then tell me what you think. (laughs) He was trying to make sure I was going to be okay with this particular portrayal of Douglass and had the same experience that he described. I laughed. I'm normally a very slow reader. I I devoured that book. I read it in like a day and a half. I couldn't stop and I couldn't stop laughing and I wanted everybody I knew to have read it. And I I had really the same feeling. And I had been asked to play Frederick Douglass on a few different occasions and always turned it down. And this one, there was no way I was going to turn it down. It was... The first time I had been asked to play a version of him that wasn't interested in setting him up as infallible. All you can do as an actor is be in service of the story as a whole, right? And the way that Frederick Douglass as a character, just remove all the history from him, the way that Douglass is situated in this story to be part of Onion's journey felt so pivotal and so important and also so fun. And getting to explore that relationship between him and John Brown, which after reading that book, I would go and do much more research than I had ever done on Douglas. And learning about that particular relationship was so fascinating. There was so much in there to play with and to get to do it in a way where it didn't have to hold up the weight of the concerns of a race, of an entire race of people about whether or not we look good on television, right? (laughs) Like that's the thing I hate. And the reason I had turned it down before was because I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in making somebody a hero because we can't survive anybody being complicated who is a notable person. Yeah. Right. And so this one, he felt real to me. He felt like a real person that I could play that was flawed and also brilliant. It didn't take away anything from how brilliant he was, didn't take away anything from how important he was. And his actions in the scenes that he's in make sense as someone else who is also yeah. like grappling with what it means to be famous and with, you know what I'm saying? Like right. this, yeah. they, they add up to all things that I felt like I understood very well. So it allowed me to approach the character from a place of understanding and not a place of like, well, I don't, this doesn't feel like a human being because I don't know yeah. that that would be useful for the story. There's no one who's read the book who doesn't have the reaction to say something like what Ethan and Debbie just said, which is that everybody laughs. Everybody thinks it's funny. It's a hilarious book, right? And that in and of itself is a little bit subversive, right? Because it's a, a book about slavery, a book about the buildup to the Civil War, a catastrophic event in American history. And, you know, with, it was treated with due seriousness by most people in most settings. And here you are, a black writer writing about America's original sin in a very irreverent way. And I saw a quote of Ethan somewhere where he said that when he read the book, the irreverence of it and the humor in it attracted him, but also that it was, quote, a very dangerous, very dangerous in the current atmosphere. And I wonder whether when you wrote the book, it felt dangerous to you to be writing about it in that tone, often compared to to Twain, right? There's a lot of comparisons of the book to, to Huckleberry Finn. Did it feel dangerous to you? Did you feel like you were doing something subversive by writing about this topic with such a humorous approach? Honestly, not at all. I just thought it was funny. I mean, race is funny. The things we do around the subject of race are just really stupid. And they're really funny. 
<laughs> so I mean, if you, I mean, if you just look at it, you know, like if a Martian landed here and saw us, you know, treating each other the way we, you don't see giraffes like getting pissed off because lions don't have stripes and long necks. I mean, we're the only. So I, I didn't see it as dangerous at all. You have to remember, I was a reporter for a long time, and then I was a jazz musician for a long time. And so the blend of like irreverence and, and fact <laughs> is folded into my life over the, the previous, you know, 20 years before I became a writer. So I'm looking for peace and something that makes me laugh. Look, if you approach a, a book like that thinking something's dangerous, you're dead out the gate. You know? So I just thought it would be funny. Ethan, I'm going to ask you about the dangerous thing in a second, because it was your quote that I quoted about it. But James, just stick with that on the humor thing. I mean, I mentioned Twain, right? Reading the reviews of the book when it first came out and subsequently when the series came out, a lot of people make this point that the book feels, whether it's, you know, the Canterbury Tales or Candide or whatever, kind of those picaresque kind of road books, right? There's a little bit of that in it. But the Twain analogy the notion of like, if Huck Finn was a cross-dressing black boy, right? I mean, that is a, a thing that people pick up on. Does that ring true to you? Were you thinking about Twain as you wrote it? Was that no, an inspiration no. tonally at all? No, look, I wish, I mean, when someone compares my work to Mark Twain, I just, it's like comparing Kenny G to Sonny Rollins. I mean, <laughs> you just really shouldn't do that. So, <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I appreciate the comparison, but there is no comparison. I mean, Twain, you know, Twain was head and shoulders above everyone. I mean, I appreciate it, but it's not, it's not really correct. Look, it's sort of like when someone listens to some, some really great music, they come up with all the superlatives to just say, oh, it's great, you know, ah, this bad. But ultimately, the song just, it just lives in your soul and it makes you want to do good. And these characters and this man and his story made me want to do good. And doing good for people in this country, especially now, is to try to help them see the history a little bit that they're not interested in and try to make them laugh. Because if we can laugh together, a lot of good things can happen. So that's what it was. Yeah. So Ethan, I, I throw it back to you because you were the one who said that that kind of irreverence, a black writer writing about slavery in that tone is, again, the quote was very dangerous in the current atmosphere. What did you mean? If you really want to talk about humor, right, and wit and making people laugh, I mean, I couldn't agree with James Moore. I think as a creative person, he can't be thinking, oh, I want to do something dangerous. It's like saying you want to do something important. I mean, as soon as somebody says to you they're going to do something important, I mean, it, you just it's a big bore. You want to do something truthful from your heart, right? But how it intersects with the public is a yeah. different thing. And I think personally that I learn more about race from Richard Pryor and Red Fox and Chris Rock. When somebody makes you laugh and they just tell the truth and your body just laughs. I remember going to see Get Out and I was at a packed movie theater you know, very mixed race audience, you know, black folks, white folks watching. And everybody, there was a weird tension in the room. Like, is it okay to laugh at that? Or one part of the crowd laughed at something more than the other. And by the time we all left, we were friends. Like, it was like that great thing that art can do, which is we were scared together. We all jumped at the same time. We laughed at the same jokes. And there's something healing that happens about it. And it's dangerous to do. What I mean is, movie studios, people putting money behind things. They're all scared. Everybody's scared to talk about this and talk about each other. And they're scared they're going to say the wrong thing. And, and Onion, our character, is not scared he's going to say the wrong thing. Right. You know, people would ask me, how'd you feel about playing John Brown? The truth is I'm not playing 
quote unquote John Brown, some library version of it. I'm playing the John Brown that Onion is seeing. David is playing the Frederick Douglass that Onion is seeing. It's art, it's a tale. It's a yarn being spun by this kid and he's gonna make it as interesting and fabulous as possible. And so I love what David said earlier about, you know, you have to live inside the metaphor of the thing you're doing and you have to play in that key. I mean, there were lots of people when we first started doing this, you know, when you start acting, you feel people by the monitors, right? And I could hear the whispers. Is he really going to be that ridiculous? I mean, he can't do this the whole show, right? You just have to tune those things out and just go, yeah, I am going to keep doing this. I am going to keep doing it, and it's going to work, but it's not going to be normal. I agree that the book is dangerous, and I agree what James just said, that it's not. I, yeah. I agree with both those statements. So, David, you made a point, though, a second ago, right, that as you were thinking about Frederick Douglass, that you knew a little bit about him, but not probably about as much as most people know, which isn't really all that much. And then you learned a lot more. I mean, I think if you watch this, clearly this is not meant to be a documentary, you know, but it's a piece of art, right? But there's obviously a historical fact in the middle of it. And important in that respect, I feel like I knew a decent amount about this story before I read the book and before I watched the series. But, you know, I think even just the presentation, the fact that John Brown's life intersected with Douglass's in the way that it did, the fact that it intersected with Harriet Tubman's life in the way that it did, the factual basis on which the book was built, those pieces of history are largely unknown in the country, right? And I think there's a part of what makes this thing, the timing of it, the way it's been received, the power of it has a lot to do with what's going on. With, you know, It's also that it kind of opens people's eyes to a story that, you know, it's not even like a lot of this history, which has been mythologized and glossed up and presented in a pretty way. A lot of these facts are just not known in any way to most mm -hmm. people. And I think that's part of why it derives a certain kind of power. You're like, really? This shit happened? Yeah. I mean, that was definitely part of it for me. And then it, it begs the question, why did we not know this before? Right. Because that feels intentional. That was one of my big takeaways from the research that I started to do was like, why would I not be taught this? Like, who is served by not teaching you about a successful overthrow of a major part of the U.S. government? You would say, like, that's a major moment in American history. There's no civil war without it. And I didn't know anything about it. And I grew up in the Bay. Like, we'd get Malcolm X's birthday off of school. Right. I didn't know. I, I knew so little about John Brown. I certainly didn't know about Frederick Douglass's intersection with John Brown. I knew nothing about any of this stuff. And so that became really interesting to me. So, James, we had that thing. We played that sound, right? It starts off the seventh episode out of seven in the series. And it's this declaration of Frederick Douglass saying, this is why John Brown matters. This is his role in history. He essentially is in a very direct way telling the audience what to think about, what they're about to see, what Harper's Ferry meant, why it was important, et cetera. Is that like, you know, your point of view, we know that it's Douglass speaking it, but is that your assessment? Like when you think about trying to historically contextualize John Brown, you know, is that you speaking in some sense about why this story matters in history and what Brown's place should be in our understanding of these events that unfolded in the lead up to the Civil War? That's why this guy really does matter. I suspect the actual words were probably put together by Mark Rashad, who was, you well, know, no, so you know, James, that is a Frederick Douglass speech that Mark and I, you know, we're dreaming about how to orient it. And so we came across in our research that speech and thought how beautiful it was to know that this is what Frederick Douglass thought. I guess we should say Mark Richard, who adapted uh, the book for screen with Ethan 
and worked on a lot of the individual episode scripts. Is an EP on it, co-creator, et cetera, et cetera. You're talking about Mark Richard there, right? You're right. But my view of this piece, of this story, is that Frederick Douglass was saying these words after John Brown was dead. And one of the most interesting and compelling pieces of theater I've ever seen, that I've ever personally seen, is when David and Ethan play this moment where John Brown, John Brown begs Frederick Douglass to come with him. And Frederick Douglass says he can't. But you can see that Frederick Douglass is speaking as a man who's just simply afraid to do it. He just doesn't have the guts to go and get himself killed, or he doesn't have the desire, whatever it is. But you can see a lot of I mean, David really worked that pretty well. But <laughs> my point is that, yes, I believe that um, until the end of his life, Frederick Douglass had some regret that he didn't have the will to die fighting slavery the way John Brown did. And that really is is one of the many many compelling pieces of humanity that this story encompasses. You know, you, you talk about Twain and Huck Finn. You know, Jim was trying to get away from slavery. He wasn't trying to be a hero. He was just trying to run from it. John Brown was running at slavery. And Frederick Douglass was yelling at it, but John Brown was running towards it to fight it. And that was the difference between them. There's a moment in the series where some characters are discussing you know, what Brown's up to here. And it's thrown into very stark relief, this notion that Brown is trying to free the slaves, but he's really not trying to save black people. He's really trying to save white people who he regards as, you know, living in sin in some sense in perpetuating the system of slavery. Just talk a little bit about that. It's part of what saves this narrative from what some people would critique. Oh, it's another white savior story. Here we got another white guy. Why are we not focusing on blacks who are trying to free the slaves? Why are we focusing on the white guy? Why is it always Hollywood making the the white guy, the hero, in some sense, Brown is really about trying to save white people's souls in this piece, right? I think very much so. I think to understand my character, you know, as I walk in the shadow of this great man, as in these, pretending to stand in these shoes, it becomes very obvious that John Brown is a Christian. And when James said earlier that he didn't have a dog in the fight, that's literally true. But I think his faith made him realize that he does have a dog in the fight that that if we all are made by the same maker and we all are brothers and sisters it is my job it is my job to go down swinging and to wake up white christian america and to stop seeing you know the the warm smile of yes i know we're all god's children but i'm not going to do anything about it is not good enough he saw himself as a co-conspirator you know as i am with you in word and deed, and I'm going to try to make this nation live up to its dream of what it claims to be. But I found so interesting, you know, when you play a character, finding out that his grandfather rode with George Washington and split with George Washington over the issue of slavery. I mean, so this is a, a man that when he was a boy, grew up in a household with abolitionists. This was not new. What was new is the call to action because of the Dred Scott Act and a few other things that happened in John Brown's life that made it impossible for him to do God's work without violence. It made it impossible for him to help escape slaves, the Dred Scott Act. And so he felt forced into this issue. I found it, it just hugely compelling. And my brain still goes back to the scene that James was just talking about that I loved so much. It's a fascinating scene. They meet. John Brown does beg Frederick Douglass to come. But it's such an act of friendship that Frederick Douglass risks his life 
to tell John Brown, I'm not going to be there. Frederick Douglass at this time is an escaped slave going south to meet him and say face to face, I'm not coming, which is a very brave act. And it's a strange thing because people did hold his manhood cheap. Some people that, oh, you should have done it. You should have died. And his answer was, you can die for justice anytime you want. I want to live for it. You know, set yourself on fire if you want. Do I admire it? Yes. Am I going to do it? No. And so the, the, the conversation is so ripe with where we are now. That was a clip from my interview with David Diggs, Ethan Hawke, and James McBride talking about their Showtime series, Good Lord Bird. After the break, I talked with the Lucas brothers, Keith and Kenny, twin stand-up team turned Academy Award nominated screenwriters for their film, Judas and the Black Messiah. We'll talk about what drew them to the story of Fred Hampton after these messages. And we're back on Hell and High Water. Let's uh, take a listen to part of the trailer for Judas and the Black Messiah. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. Looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. I will learn all that I can. I will these ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder a liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. So that's a section of the trailer for Judas and the Black Messiah, a movie that has generated a huge amount of critical uh, acclaim and buzz and a lot of award nominations, including at the upcoming Oscars. And we are here with two of the nominated part of the nominated team behind that movie, the Lucas brothers, Kenny and Keith Lucas. It's great to see you guys. Hey, we're going to struggle throughout this entire podcast and kind of figure <laughs> out which the fuck one of you is, which the fuck one. And we'll get into this because there's some really interesting. Oh, I love that dog behind Keith Lucas. Plato. Hey, Plato. Say hi. Plato, like the philosopher. Like, like the, the philosopher. philosopher. Okay. So, you know, he may start barking, but you know, that's just what dogs do sometimes. That's all right. I have two Great Danes. Ooh. One of them's named Fife Dog and the other is named Dizza. Oh, Fife. And they yeah. are good looking dogs. <laughs> yeah. But if they are in the room, that's the only thing you talk about because. Right, right of course. They are not philosophers. So uh, just a good place to start here is how does it feel to be Academy Award nominees? It feels great. I mean, it's like one of those things where you're like, man, if that ever happened, I'd have to change some things in my life. I never expected it to happen. Like when. When we were conceiving of the idea, working with Shaka, working with Will, and, and going through the motions and the process, all we wanted to do was make a good film to honor Fred's legacy. So to be acknowledged in such a fashion, it's like, it feels good, man. I, I ain't gonna lie, it feels good. <laughs> yeah, it's an honor and a privilege. It's, uh, you, you know, you dream about things like this happening, but when we were you know, going through the development process and you, you can't even, I didn't even imagine it would happen. So the fact that it did happen is still kind of startling to me but yeah it's, it's definitely a privilege it's an unlikely movie to have gotten made and that's kind of what i want to start talking about at the beginning here and I just, i'll say that it's the names here shaka king is the director of the movie who kenny mentioned will burson is the one of the screenwriters on the movie and fred hampton who uh is 
the focal point, the, I don't want to say the star exactly, but Fred Hampton, uh, sure. chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party in the late 60s, who's the focus of the movie. Right. And I'm curious about you guys, just to go back, I've heard you guys tell the origin story of this a little bit, but I'd love to talk about it some more. Sure, sure. Because I'm older than you guys are. And when I was a college student in the mid-1980s, I was at Northwestern University. Oh, nice. And this very beginning of the time when you could take a class in the history department called the 60s. Yeah. That was the first time I think about when that first ever happened. People were like, oh, the 60s is history. There's a little bit far <laughs> enough away from that. Right, right, right. And if you took the history class that I took in my junior or senior year on the 60s, there was a day devoted to the Black Panthers. Mm. And I don't know, you guys, because you're younger, I don't know whether, I know you first, I think, learned about the Black Panthers in college. Right. But I'm just curious how you came to that. Right. And then how the idea for the movie started. Right. So we were in college. It was our sophomore year, mm -hmm. 2004. And my brother and I were taking an African-American studies course. Professor Chris Fisher, great guy. And it was a course that pretty much examined African-American history from post-Reconstruction up until the late 60s, early 70s. So just right around the time where the Chicago chapter was flourishing and then ultimately they were taken down by the FBI. So we came across Fred that year. Like that was the first time I'd ever heard of Fred Hampton. I, I didn't know my knowledge of the Black Panthers were Oakland, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, you know, Elbridge Cleaver, Soul on Ice. Yeah, yeah, like the pivotal figures. Right. So I didn't know about the Chicago chapter. I didn't know that there were chapters in New York. I didn't know there were chapters in Newark. I just didn't know the Panthers were that extensive. And my only interaction with the Panthers from a media standpoint was uh, two things. The Black Panther movie that came out in 96, which I didn't watch all of it. Was it 96? 95. 95. And then Forrest Gump. So I'm like, okay, my, my, <laughs> that was it. I didn't know about, I, that was Panther. So you know, once I read up, it. You grew up in Newark, New Jersey, which is a very radical city. Yes. Right. Home of Mary Baraka, who basically was one of the founders of the Black Arts Movement. So it's not like we didn't grow up around, you know, Black history and, and learning about some of the pivotal figures in our history. We did have that, but somehow we didn't come across Fair Hampton until college. Yeah. So we, there's this chapter on Hampton. Much like it was a day yeah. devoted to them, we spent some time on Hampton. And, and even when we came across Hampton's story in college, no mention of Will O'Neill. Will O'Neill was still a ghost to us. I had no idea who he was. Right. But Hampton's story was always crazy to me because the FBI, you know, facilitated this man's murder. I mean, essentially helped to get him murdered. And so I'm just like, why aren't more people talking about this? Like, right. this is fucking crazy. He's 21 years old. Right. He's sleeping next to his pregnant girlfriend. And... The FBI and the Chicago Police Department basically assassinated him. Right. It, it was just a jarring story. It made me think. It made me sad because I was 20 at the time. Yep. I was also like dabbling in Marxism. So I was like, I, I, spiritually, I was a little connected to him. So his story always stuck with us. And then when we got into Hollywood, when we got into entertainment, we were like, we want to get his story made into a film. It has to get done. You know what I mean? You know, it's interesting just because the Panthers were obviously a, at the time and even to some extent subsequently, right, were kind of iconic in a way. Right. And people know Huey Newton. That's a name that's pretty well known among right. people right. who have an education, right? Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Eldridge Cleaver, because of Soul on Ice was a huge right. best-selling book. Right. And people know that history. And I'm curious why it was. Was it partly the fact that Fred, just to be, just to, for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, the basic story here is Fred Hampton, young, charismatic chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party. He's not just not. You said basically assassinated. Kenny is uh, is assassinated. He's assassinated. Yeah, yeah. Targeted by the FBI for assassination. Right. Killed in a brutal way. Very brutal. You know, ninety some bullets in his bed. Right. 
with the help of an informer played by Lakeith, who's in the movie, who plays William O'Neill, who's the informant. And so this is a true crime drama and a heavily political true crime drama. But I I guess the question that I wanted to ask is, even though Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Eldridge Cleaver are better known, still not people who have been covered really well by Hollywood. Right, right. I'm curious why you settled on Fred rather than some of these other characters in the Black Panther movement who were better known and maybe a little more accessible and sellable in the Hollywood context. Right. I Well, I think for me, and I don't want to speak for Shaka, Will, or Keith, but for me, his story, honestly, it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. I mean, it was perfect Aristotelian storytelling when you really think about it, how you get in with William O'Neill, how you see the rise of Fred Hampton, and then you see his ultimate assassination, and you see William O'Neill sort of struggling with the guilt of having to take down this great man. It was almost Shakespearean, in my opinion. So his story, even though it was brief, it had all of the foundations for a traditional story that could be made into a film. Whereas with Huey Newton, there's some aspects there where you can tell a story, but it's all over the place, really. I feel like for a Huey Newton story, you got to like pick a moment in his life and sort of focus on that because he lived a, a longer life than Hampton. And it would be more sprawling. It didn't, with Bobby Seale, I mean, even more sprawling right. because he, he's still alive. So, yeah, it's just about, like, trying to figure out, you know, what's the most effective and most efficient story you can tell. Right. And when we stumbled upon the William O'Neill interview, it, it all just kind of clicked to us. We were like, oh, this is the way right. we can tell Fred's story by going through the perspective of the snitch. Now you have a genre film. Now you have something that's not a conventional biopic. Right. And you have something that can operate on two levels. It can operate as a thriller, but it can also operate as a movie that's politically charged. I mean, I think for people who aren't in this game, the notion of, you know, how little you can do in a two hour movie is people don't understand it. Right. And part of the thing is the tight narrative works in that context. Now, obviously, we now have limited series and unlimited series. And, you know, there's obviously television and in peak television, we now have the capacity to tell incredibly long, intricate stories that go on over years and years. But if you're thinking about that 90 minute to 120 minute long feature film, you don't have a lot of space to work with there. You don't. And so there's a tight narrative kind of quality to this that's powerful. And, you know, the O'Neill thing. So you guys stumbled upon upon William O'Neill in Eyes on the Prize, right? Right. That's the you know, Henry Hampton's famous documentary about the modern black experience. And right. again, it's one of those things I think back to. I remember watching Eyes on the Prize when it first came on PBS. Hmm. And it was, again, iconic. I mean, right. you know, it was like in that category of things like Roots, not right. quite as big as Roots. But right. for a lot of white people in particular, it was a big door that got opened into, you know, the first big swing hmm. at a multi-part documentary on this topic. When did you guys first run across that? Was it in researching Hampton or was that something you guys had come across in your lives otherwise? I mean, Eyes on a Prize was in our community. We and People knew about it. It was just two years after. We were born in 85, so it was 87, right? So yep. we were just too young to appreciate it. But we'd read, we were reading this book called The Assassination of Fred Hampton by Jeffrey Haas. He was a people's lawyer, so he, he represented Fred Hampton. So he was very familiar with the story. And he wrote this amazing, uh, it was not a memoir, it's like a, no, it was just like basically laying out the whole story of Fred and but it was almost like a legal document because he talked about what happened after Fred got murdered and all of the you know the legal battles and the court battles that they had. Right. You know, that another story in and of itself. Right, right. It took ten years, essentially a decade, to get any sort of justice and if you want to call it that. But yeah, so we read that one and there was a couple pages on William O'Neill. 
Yeah, so it, in that book, we came across William O'Neill, and that was 2012. And then after that, we were like, we went on a deep dive trying to find all the information that we can on William O'Neill because it was just fascinating to us that this guy pretended to be a panther for all that time yeah. and then helped to get this man killed. I'm like, this guy is very complex and intriguing and would be a great cinema character. So we looked for information on him and we couldn't find anything. No, no books, no. Uh, we found a few articles about his death and then we came across his eyes on the Price transcript and it was like, blew our minds. We were like, holy shit, he's laying out the story Beat by beat, he's literally given us a film right there. It's like in our hands. We had the film in our hands. And I was like, this is it. This is it. Yep. That's a moment right. when you research, when you pop on something like that and you go, oh, fuck, right. here it is, right? Right. Yeah. And this is a very, I mean, a morally complex character or maybe not so much. He's actually not all that morally complex, but he becomes really interesting for his, <laughs> the way he is seduced right. into, right. I mean, he's forced into doing this thing because to not have to face prison time. He does the thing, and in a way, he's kind of like, well, I don't know. Let, let's talk about the characters first. We'll get to William O'Neill in a second, but just come back to the origin story just in this, right? So, you know, you guys have this idea for a movie. You've got this story now, mm -hmm. and you go out to take this thing to Hollywood, right? right? And the reaction to it is what? Well, <laughs> first, you know, we'd find this transcript, and we wrote a bunch of outlines using Save the Cat and using Dan Harmon's story circle just to try to get a, you know, a rough understanding of what the story could be. We put it into like a two page pitch doc and we went around town and uh, it was, it was a harsh reality. Like, Oh yeah, this is not a movie that's going to be easily made. Right. We heard all types of things like period pieces are too expensive. Right. This is about a black socialist who dies at the end. Like what market told, told from the perspective of a Horrible. Like, our right. protagonist is evil. Right. And we're like, but this is complex cinema. This is like, this is where we want to go. We don't want a cookie-cutter protagonist. We want someone who's morally ambiguous. And, and so the audience has to choose where they stand. Like, we want complex cinema. And they're like, well, that's not going to sell. And we're like, okay. <laughs> and it's just rejection after rejection after rejection. It was bad. Yeah, we, were going, we went to studios. We went to production companies. We were going all across town. And, uh, yeah, it was a humbling experience because, you know, <laughs> we were very confident in the idea. We thought that it was great and we pitched our hearts out, but it was just like sometimes, you know, you just need a little bit more when you're trying to sell an idea like this. Right. You can't just sell it off a pitch. You need to make sure the package is as great as it can be. And even once we had Shaka, Will, you know, Kugler, Charles King, and we had all those people attached, it was still very difficult to get right. funding. So every stage was a, was another obstacle, but at that stage when we were getting rejections, that was brutal. I mentioned the the, the nomination, right? Which is congratulations. You. And Thanks. you know, it's obviously a first, the first time there's an all black led production team that right. have uh, have a, a nominee for best picture. The movie's nominated for best picture, best supporting actor, two best supporting actor nominations right. for Daniel Kaluuya and, and Lakeith Stanfield. Right. Original screenplay, cinematography, original song, you know, a lot of accolades. The thing you said a second ago, Keith, about you need something more, the something more for you guys was Will and Chaka, who were, I guess, on this path, kind of were finding their way towards this path on their own. How did you right. guys come together in a way that the combo made the ultimate thing that got sold? So Will was already working on his own Fred Hampton script while we were generating our idea. And we were fortunate enough to come across Chaka. Uh, we were working on this FX pilot. 2016, it was for uh, this Killer Mike pilot, which eventually went to Netflix. Chaka was directing and we were acting in it. 
And we just like, we spent like a whole day with him. We just liked him. Like he was a nice dude. He was clearly a genius. He spoke our language. We vibed. He was from Brooklyn. We're from Newark. So we're Northeast kids. And also Will's from New York. So we're all Northeast kids. We're all from comedy. So I think it was just like a vibe with that. We met him. We were like, we got to pitch him this idea. We need this guy to help us get to the next level because he has the tools to get us there. But we didn't pitch it to him immediately. We waited <laughs> We waited a couple yeah, of sure. months before we were like, hey, Shaka, come to our apartment and let's talk about this idea. I mean, as always in all these stories, there's some good fortune and, and coming across someone like Will who's writing on the same topic, you already have somebody, you guys able to kind of join forces, you guys become kind of a super group here right, right. on getting this thing together. And it obviously has, you know, there's challenges you guys faced in the context of putting it out in the pandemic. Totally. It becomes one of these projects that doesn't get into cinemas. It gets onto streaming. Right. I mean, it gets into cinemas to the extent that there were cinemas to go to, but not really in a serious way. Was that at all to you guys from the standpoint of, I mean, it seems ridiculous given how much praise this movie's generated and how much love it's getting. Right. But were you disappointed at all in that, you know, when most people set out to have a long held dream to make a, a major feature motion picture, their dream is, right, right, right. you know, the Pacific Cinerama Dome. You yeah. want to be up on the big screen with a big right. crowd in the dark on a Friday night. Right. How much of a drag was that for you guys to end up going the new way that HBO Max and those guys have gone? I mean, you know, real talk is like, I grew up loving the cinema, going to the theaters. And of course you want your film to, you know, I wanted the experience of being with the cast and the crew at a premiere just yeah. to be able to have that moment with them. You know, that's that's the one I, I miss the most. But with that said, it's like, you know, this is a tough movie to make and it's a tough movie to watch. And I, I always wonder, like, if we did put it out in the theaters, you know, would we have had as many people see it? You know what I mean? Like being able to watch it in the comfort of your own home. In a pandemic. Then during yeah. the pandemic, I think certainly encouraged more people to watch it. And again, once you get six Oscar nominations, it's hard to complain about whatever happened. It's like, you know, we got to the promised land. And also, we made a great film. And I think that that was the, the ultimate goal. Make the best film that we can make. And however it gets distributed, it gets distributed. But hopefully the, the movie is of quality and it can be watched on small screens, big screens, drive-ins, wherever. Let me play one scene here. You know, one of the through lines in this movie is, Hampton's oratorical power. He's a compelling uh, figure and a great speaker. Mm -hmm. The first time we see him on a stage in the movie is the scene that we're about to play the sound from. So let's, this is the, the introduction of Fred Hampton as oratorical genius. I am proud to introduce Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. I don't need no mic. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. Malcolm X College, y'all can dig it. Dr. Charles Hurst, direct from Howard. Right on. <laughs> so what? You think the students over there are gonna be free now? Oh, they let you change the name of your college or your own name. Throw on a dashiki. Because guess what? They still gonna drag your black ass to Vietnam to shoot a poor rice farmer get shot your damn self. That's the difference between revolution and the candy-coated facade of gradual reform. Reform is just the masters teaching the slaves how to be better slaves. Under reform, you can take the motherfucking masses out 
and the slaves still be doing all the work for them. There's a man called a capitalist. Don't matter what color he is, black, white, brown, red, don't matter. Because the capitalist has one goal, and that is to exploit the people. He can have on a three-piece suit or dashiki, because political power doesn't flow from the sleeve of a dashiki. Political power flows from the barrel of a gun. So there he is, Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton, his first big speech in the movie. I assume, like everybody else, you're blown away by his performance. Ugh. But talk to me a little bit about the power of Fred as a character, as a figure in our political history. Shaka says this so much, and it's so true. He says he was the fifth writer of our screenplays. Fred's words are so powerful and so potent and so just aspirational, inspirational. And when you hear them, you're moved. I mean, we had the great fortune of being on set during the I Am a Revolutionary speech. And I kid you not, when Daniel was delivering that speech, it felt like I was in Chicago in the late 60s. All the people were just clapping. He got an applause break. It just moved me. Like working on this subject, hearing Fred's words and going through this process, man, like you can't help but be a changed person. Like, I think I came into the process a little bit more egotistical. I think I came into the process a little bit more selfish, a little bit more like, what can I get out of it? How much money am I going to make? Can I get that? And then as I've gone through this process, none of that shit matters to me. Like, I I couldn't care less about any of it. Like, all I want to do now is like, I want to make sure we honor this man's legacy because his words are so meaningful and so uplifting. And if we can create a platform for his message, then I think we've done our job, right? Like if we can create a film that really sort of displays his life in an accurate way, where people are taken by his words, then we've done our job effectively. And I, and I hope that that's what we did. I, I pray that that's what we did. Keith, I, I ask you like one of the things that the power of this movie, right, is it's not like just that if you're on the left or African-American or where your sympathies lie. The reality is that the ultimate testament to Fred Hampton's power is the fact that he got killed, right? It's like Hoover was afraid of Fred Hampton. Now we can talk about Hoover's various psychoses and his various obsessiveness and, you know, obviously his murderousness in the sense that (laughs) through Quantel Pro, he's identifying a black street politician and deciding he needs to be killed. But that is in some ways a testament to what this archetype of racist law enforcement in the, right. well, not, I was going to say the sixties, but really Hoover dominates American law enforcement for 40 years. 68. Yeah, yeah. He's obsessed with the notion that this guy, the black Panthers in general, but this guy in particular is a threat to the established order to the point where he's like, I'm going to go infiltrate this organization and I'm going to go, I'm going to assassinate this guy. And again, I say in a weird twisted way, that's kind of a testament to the fact that Fred was obviously to a lot of people potent. Mm. Yeah, he was a powerful, powerful figure. And he, he made a lot of people terrified. And that was in large part, not just because of his oratory skills, but it's his skills as an organizer, his ability to bring different kinds of people together to focus on the actual problems. He was able to like sort of cut through the differences and bring people together to focus on what the actual issues are. And I think that that terrified Hoover and not just Hoover, but, you know, the Chicago uh, political establishment, Hammerhan and, and Daly and the Chicago Police Department. There were a lot of people who were terrified of his abilities. And like you said, it's a testament to his power as a person. 
we started to talk a little bit earlier about William O'Neill, and I, I want to come back to it now because another great performance by Lakeith in there in that role, but also super important in the sense that you guys talked about this being a genre movie and with also this obviously important political overlay. You know, the the thing that, that O'Neill gives you is the ability to get inside the FBI, right? He opens the door into this other world and, you know, it kind of gives you that access point. He's a nexus. Yes. So Kenny, like, just talk a little bit about, like, I mean, I, I said before something about moral complexity about William O'Neill. Mm. What do you guys make of him and having studied these guys so much and, you know, the, that eyes on the prize transcript being so pivotal to the creation of, of the story. What do you now on reflection, as you've seen this thing realized, what do you think of, of William O'Neill? What are we to make of him as a character and as a figure in this drama? Right. It's very challenging to say where I stand from a moral standpoint, because on the one hand, his actions directly led to the assassination of a great man. And I think he ultimately set our community back by a couple of decades because we lost such a great organizing orator and leader. So I'm disgusted by him, naturally. But yeah. on the other hand, it's like he was 17, 18. He had a, he had a criminal record. You have the FBI approaching you saying, look, if you don't do X, you're going to Y is going to happen. So on, at that level, I'm like, shit, I don't know what I would have done if I was 17 with a charge and the FBI said, do this. Are you going to go to prison for five years? I can't say I wouldn't have done it. So yeah, but it's like the same thing happened to Hampton. He had right, right, right. the cops saying that he's going to do five years if he doesn't do X and he was willing to take the time. So it's like ultimately it depends on how you're built. And right. uh, O'Neill wasn't built strong. He was a coward. You know, obviously, I understand the circumstances. Yes, tough circumstances to be in. But you have to recognize, man, that, you know, this is Fred Hampton we're talking about. This is a man who the community needed. And so he should have been willing to take those years. I agree. I'm just saying, I'm just saying I am disgusted by his actions. And I, and I think he is a coward. And what he did was heinous. And I, he's complicit in the murder. I'm just saying... I have more context now. And I think I think as a character in a film, he's a nuanced character because he's grappling with these two for extremes. Sure, for sure, for sure. You know what I mean? So it's not like when I first came across William O'Neill, I was disgusted. I was right, like, right, right. I, are we really going to center a movie <laughs> around this guy? But like you said, it takes the film to another level. Right. You're getting into the mind of the FBI. You have their full operation laid out through this character. So it was a necessary move to make this movie... Right exceptional. If, if we hadn't gone that way, I can't say the movie would have been as complex. I, I don't, I have no evidence to prove that, but I do believe right. going through William's perspective did add another level of nuance to the film. For would sure. have been a more conventional biopic right. and, and potentially very good, but a lot more right. conventional than it right. is. Let me ask you right. one last question about the movie. And, you know, it's now been out for some months and a lot of people have seen it. And, you know, when you live with a project, as long as you guys live with this project, you know, dating back as many years as you have, you feel like you're like you've thought about it from every angle, like you've considered it in every way, like, you know, you know, the characters inside and out, you know, the movie inside and out. And then right. at least my experience with books and, and television and other things I've been involved in is that you put the thing out in the world and then people have a reaction to it and you go, wow, I never thought of that. Like, hey, right. you know, you're hearing all kinds of things from people that surprise you in terms of they see things that you never saw, even though you stared at right. it every day. Right. You know, every waking hour for a decade or something, you're right, like, oh, right. wow, huh, interesting. That I didn't really think about that. So I'm curious if there's anything about the reaction that you've heard and people's 
assessments of the movie and how they've reacted to it that have surprised you and and maybe even taking your guys understanding yeah. of what you made to a different place right no man it's been a whirlwind i mean you because you you create in a vacuum we're talking to shaka we're talking to will charles ryan and, and we're creating this film and you don't know how people are going to take it you believe that you're going into it with the right energy and the right mindset so everyone's going to love it so it was a little shocking when when some of the criticisms were oh you sh why did they go from the perspective of william o'neill do we need that character well he took away from fred so a lot of those criticisms really like took me aback i'm like oh, well yeah no fred's story is just as important as will but this is the way we're presenting the film and and why aren't you judging the film holistically why are you focusing on the part where you, you disagree and so it was another level of film criticism that I just wasn't prepared for. So it took me a little aback, but but ultimately I'm like, we got six nominations, so I think we did the right thing. But uh, I was a little taken aback by that. Yeah, I always felt like once the movie was out, people would move away from the criticism of Daniel being British. But even after we got great reviews and got the Oscar nods, there's still people out there you know, wondering why we cast a British person. I'm like, yo, he killed it. <laughs> like, it's one of the greatest performances of this year, if not of the decade. And it's like, we chose Daniel because Daniel's uh, an exceptional actor. And and, <laughs> and Shaka was, was an intuitive feeling for him, and he, and he knew it, and it paid off. And I think Kaluuya was the perfect, is, was the only person that could play him, to be honest. I, I can't even right. see anyone else playing for him because Kaluuya is so... Phenomenal. So there, there are little things like that, but I do like the the letterbox community. They tend to be very, very uh, insightful with their criticisms, and so it's been interesting. I'm amazed that anybody is nit would. I mean, I don't know. People find shit to nitpick about no matter what, but like always, I mean, always the idea that the idea that you're like Dan Kaluuya, man, he's British. Like that's I can't even. I've never heard that criticism. I've never heard that come it's up. Crazy. You guys obviously yeah, are that, that, more... was, that was a huge point of contention. Even <sighs> when we did the first press release couple years, I mean, it was like 2019, right? And people were just like, that was the first thing, the first real criticism that we got was like Kaluuya's playing Fred Hampton. And some people were pissed, but... And then the other thing was, how could you go from the perspective of a snitch? Right. That that was a criticism that I was like, these people, either they don't understand cinema history or they're yeah. just dense. And I'm like, I can't... It was a very frustrating. I'm like, we went from the perspective of a snitch because we're telling a fucking crime epic. It's right. like... You got to go from the perspective of a criminal if you're telling a crime epic. I mean, I don't know. It's just like having to explain to people why we made certain moves was becoming very frustrating. So when we were finally validated by the Academy and then when Lakeith got a fucking best supporting actor, I was like, all right, now do you guys understand why we did what we did? Because yeah. we made the movies much better now. Right. But you guys are much more. You, you guys are much more polite than me. I would have just said, "Shut the fuck up." <laughs> um, that sort of been my response to that. Um, it's my fucking movie. I made it our right, fucking movie. Right. We made it the that's way right. we wanted to make that's it. Go fuck. Go fuck yourself. Wanted to say like, go fuck yourself, but it's like you know you got to be diplomatic these days. But yeah, apparently, uh, you guys are great to take the time, and you know it's a, it's a cool moment when an act or an artist or a writer or a performer of any kind when they sort of tip over, you know, from that thing where they're kind of culty and people know them and people think they're cool. And, and you're like, they're a little bit of a secret, you know, we're like, yeah. Hey, you guys, Hey, you know, yeah. these guys, know these guys, Lucas brothers, they're pretty cool. Like, you know, that shit. And people go, who the fuck are Lucas brothers? You go, Oh, you gotta <laughs> check these guys out. You know? And then there's a month. All of a sudden everybody's like, Oh, Lucas brothers, Lucas brothers, Lucas brothers, yeah. you know? And you, if you're a fan of that act before they cross over, you know, 
you sort of had that moment of regret for a second where they're not your secret anymore, you know, yeah, they don't feel yeah, like yeah. your secret. But then you think about it and go, you know, I'll always know that I was there ahead of the rest of the crowd on this <laughs> or ahead of a lot of people. And uh, it feels to me like you guys are right on that brink right now. We're like, this is going to be not just because of the Academy Award nomination, but things are right. coming together for you guys in a really good way. And I say congratulations again. The movie's the movie's fantastic. It's great to see a dream realized and then not only to see it realized, but have it be honored and respected right, and tribute right. to in the way that this movie has been for you guys. So that's fantastic. So um, thanks again Thank for you, being man. here. Thank you for taking the time to interview us. This was awesome. And that was a highlight of my interview with the Lucas brothers, Keith and Kenny. If you'd like to hear more of any of the interviews you've heard parts of today or any of our other illustrious guests, head over to whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe and download more from the Hell and High Water archives. You will find many treasures and many splendors and many diamonds it's not even that, not even like diamonds in the rough. It's not really that rough. You just go over there. It's like they're all laying there on the floor. Just pick the diamonds up and download them and then listen to them. You'll have a good time. Uh, Hell and High Water. It's a podcast from The Recap and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Aaron Sorkin, guys behind The Good Lord Bird, Debbie Diggs, Ethan Hawke, and James McBride, and Keith and Kenny Lucas, the Lucas Brothers, for being with us. If you like this episode, highlight episode, or any of our other episodes, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us. But be nice about it, please on whatever app you listen to podcasts on. Hell and High Water is on hiatus at the moment, but it's a short hiatus, so we'll be back soon with more fresh, brand new, crisp, tasty episodes. Real soon, I promise. We're not going to be away for very long. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle the research. Stephanie... Fender is our post producer, and Christian Fidel Castro Russell is our executive producer. 